Amen. Well, you can be seated this morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Yeah? Well, we can say goodbye to our kids, too, that are, are, are heading out. Um, I, I, yeah, <laughs> bye, kids. That song is just awesome, right? God is faithful. And I love that this morning we get to continue on in our psalm series because every one of these psalms fo- focuses our direction upwards towards the character of God. And in a minute, um, we'll open up Psalm 127. Um, but I wanted to wish you a happy 4th of July weekend. And this morning I was looking through some things and I came across a quote from John Adams. And um, as they were forming the Declaration of Independence, they thought they had the job done on July 2nd, but it took a couple of days to get the wording right. Anybody ever worked in a committee before? <laughs> so after, after a couple of days of deliberation on exactly how they wanted to word this declaration, you know, July 4th came about and the Independence Day that we celebrate today. But this is the quote from John Adams to his wife, Abigail, um, in a letter of some form. It says, the 2nd of July... 1776 will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. And I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations. He was right. As a great anniversary festival, it ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by the solemn act of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade and shows and games and sports and guns (laughs) All the Second Amendment people are like, yeah, heck yeah, man. (laughs) Bells, bonfires, and illuminations. And from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. The line I think that you resounded with was the deliverance from God Almighty, right? I think that most of you did. I think that there's a, a declaration of independence that... Um, was independence from the tyranny that they were facing um, from King George and to be obedient and sacrifice and to come and to, to do the great experiment of America that formed this nation that we have today that gives us the freedom today to meet like we are uh, without, with zero um, threat, with zero thought of someone barging through the door saying you can't meet that way. It's a tremendous thing. It's a tremendous thing and it's a, there's a good reason to be patriotic in that regard. Um, There are those that fought valiantly through the years to uphold that freedom that we have. And so when we wave the flag, when we have uh, celebrations and barbecues, and when we merge together the fellowship of the saints, right, that we being together as the body of Christ, and then the joy that we have in what God has given us in in this place, America, to be able to worship as we do, it's it's right and fitting to have these days of celebration. And so today you're, you know, David knows what this is all about because he wore the he wore the flag man so good good on you david but but in truth there's there's something special about today and um and in that too we can't help but feel the the hush that's over the room too of like yeah but the yeah but part of it is the the things that we experience and the decline of morality and the the lack of understanding of the formation of where our nation arrived from and and the the conversations that we have with our friends and neighbors that aren't even believers that, that are going, this is just getting weird, right? Are you with me? And I was, I was talking to a neighbor um, in my neighborhood, and I know he doesn't go to church, and I know that he isn't a follower of Jesus, but, but still just baffled by the, the things that we experience in our world. And that's why uh, I'm so grateful that we have these times every week to get together to worship God, to remember who we are, to remember who God is, and to continue walking with him faithfully. As I was worshiping, I was sitting here thinking to myself, man, I feel so much stronger in the Lord in this moment because of you all. And I'm not saying that in some cliche kind of way. It was almost like this warning that I felt from the Holy Spirit for people in the room to really be careful about isolation. That we, we came out of a period of that, that that had really dark impact on many lives. But there's something so tremendous about the gathering of the saints that were together in one place, not just to give high fives and hugs and to eat good food after, but all that's fine and good. But isn't there something special about like when Christian was leading us in that song that you were moved to clap? It wasn't clapping for him, although he's amazing. It wasn't to clap for him. It was to clap for a God who has overcome this wicked world, this God who reigns above it all. Are you with me? 
So, so when we come, that's what we're doing week after week. And I got to tell you that what we have is special. This is special. It's special. It's special that we would have the friendships that we have. It's special that we would have this community. And so when we come to this psalm today, um, and when we come to this day of celebration for our nation, we come with, with eyes wide open. And our ultimate gratitude is to our God, the God, the Almighty God who does deliver, the Almighty God who is above it all, who has overcome the evil one. And who will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Right? So praise God. So Psalm 127. It's so awesome to just go through scripture. Right? It's just, you know, we we chose these Psalms of Ascents for for a summer in the Psalm series. And we didn't know what each day would hold. I think we chose the series before we chose, like, some of the events that we did. Meaning, like... um, Jubilee and and Ohana today. And so it's awesome the way that the Holy Spirit leads as you're just following along. And and my build up to say all that is to say um, this verse that we're going to read today or this portion of scripture has something to do with family. Right. And I thought, wow, this is just perfect. And it has something to do with family. It has something to do with, um, I don't know, just the way that that we see God, the way that we view him and the way that we view ourselves. And so I hope that today I'll be able to unpack what's what's kind of percolating in my heart. There are times when you're when you're studying scripture and you just think you're there. And then there are other times when you, you know, you just want more time to kind of develop it. Does that make sense? And so standing up here is a vulnerable thing. You know, Uh, (laughs) I feel vulnerable this morning, but but I, I, I believe that God has something really special for us. And, and I think that it might challenge us. It might challenge the very values that we hold as Americans that sometimes can be contrary to the word of God. Sometimes that independence that we love and long for can keep us from dependence upon God. Are you with me or am I in dangerous waters here? I know it's the 4th of July. We have to figure out in our tension of these things how we we honor God, how we remain dependent upon him, and also work really hard. And so this is the dance that we we go through as we read this psalm. And so that's why I feel like I'm a little bit landed, but I still, things are percolating in my heart. So let me just stop with talking about me, and let me read the scripture. Psalm 127, let's look at it together. It says, unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. In vain you rise up early and you go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep, excuse me. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children in one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. If you were looking in your Bible, if you have it open or if you're reading off the screen, and maybe it didn't say it on the screen, but there's a title there and it says Psalms of Ascent, but it says that it's a Psalm of Solomon, right? What do you know about Solomon? Uh, Solomon is uh, one of David's sons. He was the son that David had with Bathsheba. Solomon was one who is known to be the wisest, right? That he was, he authored or penned most of the Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes. And, and so the thing that we know about Solomon is that he, he asked the Lord for this wisdom and God gave it to him. But, but if I'm thinking about family, I got to be real honest. As I'm thinking about Solomon's life, am I thinking, is he the poster child for family? Solomon, if you don't know much about him, um, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, I'm no mathematician, but that's a thousand women in his life. And in that, he he writes a lot, and he writes this one proverb that you kind of get some insight into. Proverbs 21.9, it says, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> There's a, another proverb that talks about like the quarreling wife is like basically like a dripping faucet, you know? So, listen, again, with this message, I'm in dangerous waters in, in all things that I could potentially say here. 
but, let, but just take the leap with me and multiply that by a thousand. So this guy's like an expert in, in understanding what, never really measuring up. And, and by the way, I'm not going to try to do some kind of theological gymnastics to justify his, his polygamy. Like, that is just a lot. That, that, the, the, the fact that, that he married and had that many women in his life far more represented the pagan culture than he, that he lived in than it, than it did represent God's intention for family. Are you, do you agree with me on that? And what's crazy about this is we used to say things like, oh, back in the Old Testament, crazy stuff happened. And you try not to like really, you just try like, it's like embarrassing Old Testament stuff, you know, it just happened back there. But now, even in our world today, I have to just take this side note here for a moment and to say, um, beyond like our associations with certain religions that allow polygamy, even within popular culture, it's becoming far more acceptable to have polyamorous relationships to be like, hey, we're just giving it a try, you know, we're committed to this person, but we can be, it's like become the norm in some circles where it's like celebrated. And so in one hand where you could go, like, that was just so Old Testament, weird pagan times, you, you, you have to go, wow, and even in this moment, there's something of the enemy's evil plan to try to disrupt and destroy something that God intended to be so beautiful. And so beyond all the confusion about what's permitted by God and why these guys had multiple wives, you just dive right into the New Testament and you find clarity. And where you find clarity is in passages like uh, 2 Timothy when he's unpacking the, um, you know, the qualifications for leadership. It's actually 1 Timothy, excuse me, 3.2. It says that, that these like, leaders, these deacons, these elders in the church should be what? The husband of how many wives? One wife, right? It's not difficult to interpret. That for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will, the two will become one flesh. And what God has brought together, let no one separate. Right? And so right out of the gate, you have this person, Solomon, who's writing a psalm. And as he's writing the psalm, you can have this, like, this feeling of like, man, this is getting kind of depressing. Well, just buckle up because I'm about to read the first chapter of Ecclesiastes and, and it'll really do it for you. But, 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 but what, what, we're, what you're seeing and maybe in an analogy would be this. Um, and this is no insult to those of you that are mechanics. But it's often the case that there could be a mechanic, uh, an automobile mechanic, who is stellar at fixing vehicles. Every vehicle that he fixes, people know about them. They're like, man, you got to get this guy to fix your car. Everything he does is just meticulous. But you go to that mechanic's house, and what do you find? A yard full of half-done vehicles. What is he often driving? A jalopy that doesn't have any oil in it that's just like blowing funky smoke. And he's just thinking, I can, I can fix this later, right? It's kind of the thought process when you think of Solomon writing some of these things. And, and, and this is blowing, it could blow your mind to think of this this way, but it's kind of the thought of like a surgeon, you know, let's say he just completes a stellar surgery on, on a person and he heals their lungs and he goes out after that and he washes up and walks out to the back and lights up a cigarette just to kind of like, you know, just kind of unwind a little bit, right? This cognitive dissonance between what you know to be what you should do and an expert in it. And you could tell anyone, man, this is how you do cars. This is how you do surgery. This is how you do family. But then when you get to the application piece, you might be the expert that writes the books, but at some level, it's very difficult to live it out. Does that make sense? And so when I read Solomon, the author of this, I read in it, one who knew with wisdom what to do, but lived out a completely different thing. And so I've got to say for us as we listen to it today, um, there should be some sense of comfort in that, knowing that God used this person to be able to impart wisdom. But there's some identification too that probably for each one of us, we know the right thing to do. We know the right work-life balance. We know the right way to manage our finances. We know the right way to be a husband, to be a wife, to, to be a father, to be a son, to be a friend. We know it. We could give the scripture on it. But sometimes we're like that mechanic or we're like that surgeon, you know, <laughs> forever that image in your mind. No, but, but where we know it, but we're like, oh, why do I, why is that my life verse? It shouldn't be that the very things I hate I end up doing. The Apostle Paul this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And so as we, we look to this today, we look not only to understanding what the Bible is saying about the human condition, but we look to the one who can solve the problem, 
right? That, so the tension becomes how we work hard to give ourselves fully to God, but how we allow the work of the Spirit to work in and through us. And so that's my big introduction. But as you see Solomon struggling, I think, you see it in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he begins this first chapter with um, really what can kind of sound like a little bit of a depressing rant. I'm not going to lie to you. But it says this, vanity of vanities. And he's not talking about like selfies all the time, you know. We, we, just, we just had a vacation, and we, we spent the week in Newport Beach, which was awesome. I think that I just want to live there on the beach, and everything would be good, right? But, um, but the amount of selfies that go down at sunset is tremendous. Like, like the, the effort that it takes to get a natural photo is something else. Like, you know... Like you just like people actually would bring lighting and stuff and standing on the pier and then and then you know you just the right like you got to shake to a certain point to then get anyways um, so it's when he's saying vanity of vanities he's not talking the vanity of like like what we see in Orange County but he's speaking of of the vanity of of meaninglessness right so some of your translations would say meaningless meaningless so vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity or meaningless. What does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around the wind goes. And on its circuits the wind returns and all the streams run into the sea, and the sea is not full. To the, peace where the, to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Are, are you guys feeling it this morning? A man, can utter it, a man can utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been it is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There will be nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which is said, see, this is new. It is already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to come among those who come after. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word, please. (laughs) And, And listen, I know like this is scripture. And I, I, I mean no disrespect to it, but I, I think it's important to see, like, where is this coming from? And probably a lot of us identify with days like that, go, what's the point? Like, what's the point of me driving in traffic for ages to get to a job that I don't even like? Da, 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 right? Solomon doesn't leave us with that point of discontent or that crisis that he's having or feels like he's having through that first chapter the the final verse in the final chapter brings us to the point right and the point is the end of all the matter has been heard fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing whether good or evil this is the whole kit and caboodle. This is it. Like of all the crisis, of all the things, the questions of why and the times that we spend trying to figure ourselves out, figure the other person out, figure America out, figure Orange County out, figure California. I was telling somebody, I saw this meme that said, it said, uh, oh, kids, stop complaining. Some people have to live in California. That's it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought that was funny. I, I, but... but but anyways, instead of trying to figure all these things out, it gives us this point. And this point is this. The end of the matter has been heard. Keep all his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God. Have a healthy respect. Have an awe for God. The very things that we lament when we see, like, where is this world heading? We go after. And so then when it gets into the part about where I'm going to hopefully unpack this psalm now, where we get into who the builder really is. It says that unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. I want to be very clear that this passage doesn't give us the the sign-off to do nothing. It doesn't give us this, like, if if you're reading this and going, well, if nothing, if that's not the point, then I should just 
just try to do my best to wake up every morning and fear God. I don't need to work. I don't need to do anything else. That's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the New Testament. It's not even the message of some of other Solomon's writings in the Proverbs. It tells you things like, hey, you know, it, 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 he gets pretty rough. Like, wake up, you sluggard. It's <laughs> like, learn a lesson from the ant. You know, you got you to you keep at it and work hard. And this is where the tension comes in of how hard do I work and where, where does God step in and do the work? And, and what I see in Scripture is this, this um, relationship that we have with the creator of the universe where we see it in other terms throughout Scripture where we see Jesus as what? The great high priest, right? So he is the one who's done it all for us. Thank you, Jesus. But then the Bible calls us as those grafted into this nation that is called a kingdom of priests. So we have our great high priest and we have those of us that are called the priesthood of all believers, we have the, the creator of the universe who once and for all made heaven and earth and made something out of nothing. And yet we, created in his image, are also those who create. We have in scripture the office of a shepherd, right? So, But we know of our Lord that he is the great shepherd of the sheep and under him are under shepherds. And so that's where we find ourselves. And whenever that order gets skewed, we labor in vain. When that order is in the right, um, the right view, we work for him. We give ourselves fully to the things of God. And God is the one who gets it done. And so this, this is the, the message, I think, as I'm reading it. That unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Who is the one who has the blueprints? Who is the one who has the plan? Who is the one who's told us how to do it? Because if we're not following that one, you are spinning your wheels. How many could just raise your hand and say, I know I'm really good at spinning my wheels. My hand is up super high. Because I think even in, even in our Christian realm, like even in our, our aim to want to follow God, we sometimes do what Blackaby says is we ask God to bless what we're doing versus doing what God is blessing. And, and the way that that can often look is like, oh, God, I need provision. I'm just going to go, 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 go. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, 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 do. Right? As I said, doo-doo in church. Um, I'm going to go, 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 go. And we wear ourselves out before we seek the face of God and say, how do I put you in the seat of being my provider? How do I follow the instructions that you have? What are my steps of obedience? I'm not going to just grind and ask you to bless it, but I'm going to sit at your feet. I'm going to fear you. I'm going to listen to you. And I'm going to follow a step of obedience because sometimes God is, God's economy is way different than our economy. Have you ever experienced that? It's sometimes in a, in a place of financial lack, our intellect says, make it happen, ask God to bless it. And sometimes God says, hey, I'd like for you to give some more of that away. And you're like, really, Lord, I, you, you'd like me to be generous in this moment of lack? And that is a step of obedience and as you meet him in that step of obedience, you begin to see this wave of provision come. That's just one example. And I'm not saying that that's the, that's the principle in, in any and every financial hardship, but I'm saying that is one in Scripture. That as we talk about each week, as we give unto the Lord, as we put, make him the Lord of our finances, um, he meets us and provides for us. Um, so unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It says, unless the Lord watches over the city... The watchmen stay awake in vain. The, the thing we learn about God's character, and this I hope will be your takeaway, is that God is a builder and God is a protector. So God is building, God is protecting. He's protecting what he's building. And, and, and I hope that I'm not being too mysterious when I say this, and I hope you'll can, you can take the leap with me, but the temptation for us is to build on our own and protect what we've built. And that's a spot where we've just got to step back and go, Lord, am I being like this or am I being like that? If I just had that house, if I just had that car, if I just had that thing, then, God, I would give fully to you. I would be so secure to be able to serve you like I want to. Lord, if, my, if this happened or that happened, and sometimes we can lose that simple step of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. And so this psalm for, for the children of Israel was reordering their steps. It was preparing them as they go to worship to remember who's in charge, who's the one who's really working behind the scenes. And he is the builder, he is the protector. Um, as I was thinking about this and, 
and asking the Lord to give me some application uh, for my life and wanting to share that with you as well, this is where it comes in, where we look at the, the concept of building and protecting, and that's really likened to control, right? Control. So if we're making something, we want to control it. And I just wonder this morning, and I, I had to check my own heart, are there things that I have to control the outcome on? I have, to, I have to make sure that it doesn't happen a certain way because I need to help God out in that way. I, I need to make sure that what I've, my little kingdom is protected. Does that make sense to anybody? And so I just want to drop that as a way of, uh, in a way of application to see what the Spirit might want to do in your life. The second, um, the second part of this verse, it says, In vain you rise up early. And you, you go late to rest. And it says this phrase, eating the bread of anxious toil. I heard one pastor say that that's adding worry to the workload. So there's, oh, there's work that we've got to do. And when we add worry to it, man, does it affect every aspect of our life. It says that, Eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is not a shame for those who struggle with insomnia, man. There are those nights where you can't sleep. There are those chemical things that happen in your body that have to get worked out, and that's a very real struggle. But what it is saying is that there are those that can take on that role of builder and protector, and so that whatever it is within your vocation, maybe sometimes your identity gets wrapped up in what you do, and we can all run that race a little bit. And as we do, we bring work home with us to the point where we can't stop thinking about it. And we're adding anxiety to the workload. We're adding worry to the workload, worrying about things that we can't change at all. We can't do anything about it, but we're holding that place of worry. And what does that do? It's the thing that it keeps you up at night just going, how am I, you know. And how many of you are effective in the middle of the night? I do weird stuff in the middle of the night. Debbie, you're, bless you for being effective in the middle of the night. I wake up and say weird things and do weird things, and that's not the best time. That's the time for, for rest. I can remember different jobs that I had, and I've shared with you before my job as a driver. You know, when I was driving for the, the Marriott, I was like 19. And I remember just the, bringing home the worry of, of work, going straight from a late-night shift, coming home at 3 a.m. and just trying to fall asleep because you had something to do. And all you can dream about and think about is the person that you left over there and the person you left over there and trying to do impossible routes to pick people up. I've heard people who have been servers. I know you guys have been servers where you're having dreams like, oh, I forgot to fill their water or, you know, they needed iced tea. It's irrational, but it's keeping you awake. It's adding worry to the work. And this psalm reminds us that there is a builder, there is a protector. That's his primary job. And as we do our best through the help of the Holy Spirit to give him those things on the daily, moment by moment, not caring what we're not intended to carry, he then blesses us with the peace that passes understanding. He blesses us with the rest that we need. And so sometimes those lack of sleep moments could, could also be a moment to kind of like to check in with God and say, Lord, is there something that I'm hanging on to in worry? Am, 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 I, am I adding that to my workload? And is it impacting and affecting my life? And just simply asking the Holy Spirit to take it. The next shift in this scripture almost seems to like take a new theme, but but theologians would say that even the building of the house has a tie-in to the building of family, right? And so the difference between um, building a house and a home, and this is what it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he is with his enemies in the gate. I was thinking about, um, when I was reading this, I was thinking about a story that happened for us two, two different times. We live in a house um, nearby here, and um, the house was built in 1954, and the first owner um, did a room addition, and, and um, it was, he did that in like 1964, I think, or 65, and I say all that to say one day I was out in my front yard, and I see this couple riding a bike one way, and then riding a bike back and then riding another way, and riding it back, which is common in our area. There's a lot of foot traffic and stuff. And they're just, like, looking at the house, you know, and talking. And they're probably somewhere in their 50s or 60s. And, and I say, hey, you guys, because I'm a dork. I talk to everybody in a way. Hi, you want to talk? And um, 
And, uh, and they, they slow down and they, they say, um, oh, she says, I was raised in that house. I go, no way. Come on. You got to check it out. She's like, oh, no, no, no. I said, no, come in. Come in and look at the house. And so they park their bikes and they come in the, the door. And the moment she crosses, crosses the threshold of the house, she wells up with tears. And she looks and she goes, my dad built this room. And she said, he was so meticulous. She said, and she saw our fireplace. She's like, he laid the brick on that fireplace. And then the guy that was with her goes, yep. Remember picking her up for a first date here, walking in, talking to her dad right in this room. And I was like, hey, come check it out. She's like, oh, no, no. And she's super polite, super kind, you know, like, oh, I can't. I go, no, no, you have to see the rooms. Come see what we've done. And so she walks in. I go, this is my daughter's room. My daughter's room is, like, so beautiful and has, like, pretty art, and it's all nice and put together. And she walks. That's why I took her there first. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I took her there, and she goes, oh, this was my room. And I said, yes, yeah, my daughter's room. And then, you know, showed her the rest of the house and whatever else. And she thanked me, and we just shared a few words, and that was it. A couple years ago, I was sitting out. We have a little porch. I was sitting out on the porch, and this big truck, big diesel truck. Cool graphics on it and stuff from, like, this guy who has his construction company. And he's just sitting right there. Diesel motor still going. And he rolls down the window. And it was, like, awkward. And you can hear him talking, but they're looking and talking. And, and I go, um, hey, guys, I'm a dork. And, 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 they, and they said, um, oh, hi. And I said, what's up? And they go, he goes, oh, I used to live in that house. <laughs> True story. I'm not making this stuff up. And I said, oh, you, come on in, man. And, and, and he goes, no, my wife will die. I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. Come on in. And big guy, and he, he shuts off the... I know there's a thing about leaving your diesel truck running, and you're not supposed to shut it off, but he... So it's like, I don't know why that's what I think about in the story. But anyhow, so he, he does, like, the big effort it takes to shut it off. <laughs> he shuts his truck off, and then, and then he comes in, and his wife really is kind of mortified. And I said, hey, it's all good. You can come check it out. Come look at the house. See, he was the son of a second or maybe third owner. I don't know. But he lived in it in a different time. And he lived in the house that he was the owner just before we bought the house. And when we bought the house, it did not look meticulous. The house was the least expensive house in the city of Orange at the time. True story. Miracle that we even got it. The, chi- the paint was all chipped. Uh, when we walked in to look at the house, there was a sock attached to the wall in the, um, in the laundry room. And there was still bacon on the stove and grease on the walls. And uh, we're like, we'll take it. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so, so, but you could just, you know, you could feel the, just a, kind of something different in the house, right? So anyways, he walked in and he goes, huh. And he goes, I remember it a lot bigger. <laughs> and then he walked into the room and he walked in to look. I go, which one was your room? And he goes, oh, this one. And. You know, and he looks in, um, and I'm thinking, like, is it smart that I have these people in my house right now? And, and, then, um, and then he walks, he goes, ugh. He goes, ugh. In one of the rooms, he goes, I just remember. And then he, he said, uh, he goes, I had some rough times here, man. My teenagers, I rebelled big time. He goes, I, I joined the military. He was a combat veteran. He goes, I found Jesus. And, uh, man, this makes me want to cry. Crazy. He says, I found Jesus. He changed everything in my life. And he goes, I thank God for what he's done for me. But he goes, I mean, I got some rough memories here. Lots of fights with my dad. Lots, lots of stuff went down here. Same house, right? Same house. Different home. And when I was thinking about the building that we're building and we're building in, in our structures, you know, this structure, the structure where you live, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if you're dwelling in a 500-square-foot apartment for a season in time, if God's blessed you with a sprawling, um, nice, beautiful home. If he's, there, there's no shame in those things. What God has given you, he's given you. But the psalm is telling us, be really, really careful how and what you're building with what he's given you. Because... If he's given you much and you think that a little more is going to bring happiness to the family, you might find uh, that that's not the case at all. You might find that the longing 
and, and by the way, I got the sense from the first couple that they were doing pretty good. They had really nice bikes and stuff, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm thinking that, like, the fondness of her memories in that little home in the city of Orange, you know, maybe she had a big home somewhere else, but there was something of that that just brought joyful tears to her eyes. Whatever God has blessed you with, whatever sphere of influence, whatever dwelling place, understand that it's not the four walls, it's not the circle of friends, it's not the more that is better or the less that's better. It's what you do and how you build with the builder. It's getting that order correct and straight. It's understanding what Solomon said of, I'm going to fear God and obey his commandments. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things are going to be added. And that's really hope for us. That means that we can be a resilient people. That means that we can be flexible. That means that our happiness doesn't come through what we drive or where we live or how big our backyard is or how small it is. And I say that in all honesty that there are some that's like, oh, it's too big. I want to be a minimalist. There are some that's like, it's too small. I want some room to stretch out. We as the people of God, we can, we can be connected to the great builder and have such hope in knowing that we can build family wherever he's placed us. And so in that, um, there's a few things that, that it gives us as analogies. Um, it says that in verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. It speaks of this, this um, value in children. And, you know, you, you just have to step back for a moment and, and realize that valuing a child is not giving a child everything it wants, right? Valuing a child is helping to raise and train them to be an adult. And there's a heartbreak in all of our hearts, right? I I think that it's collective as we look and say, um, there's a message that speaks to our society today that says children are so valued that you should do whatever they want, that it should be a, uh, a child-directed world. It should be a child-directed school system. It should be a child-directed medical system. It should be a child-directed home. But that's not what we read. What we read is that children should be so highly valued that they're molded and shaped to do the very same thing that the parents are called to do. That the, the parents are called to obey the commands of God and fear him. And likewise, they're passing on a heritage to their children. And I want to commend the parents. I love the fact that we have a growing section of young parents. I want to commend you in your intentionality to mold and shape your children into the very image that God has created them in. That you're not shaping them to be just like you but you're pointing them to their creator and showing them the way that they were intended to walk in so that at the end, they won't depart from it. That's a beautiful thing. And it's a very tiring thing. Building is not easy. Um, I I love the the memories of early raising early, you know, like in Kate and Daniel's life when they were little. I love those memories. They're beautiful. But when I was living them, I think that saying that Rochelle would say often is what the... The days are long, but the years are short. The days are long. It's like, really? Do I really have poop on my arm right now? Like, like that, that was like the reality of that moment. But when I think back, it's like, oh, I little poop on my arm. You know what I mean? It, but but in, those, in that moment, it's just like, this is work. But you're building something. You're building something, and it's work. This isn't just a, a message or a psalm for only parents. So this is what we do in community as well. That as we uphold the standards, as we follow the ways of God, as we speak truth and love to one another, we're creating environments where children can thrive because they're valued. Um, it says that they're valued like an arrow in the hand of a warrior. I was just recently watching Alone. It came through. On, you ever see that show Alone? Um, where they dropped some survivalists in the middle of nowhere and helped, hoped that they don't die and see how long that they could live there. It's why we watch these things. I don't know. I, I was thinking, like, anyways, I, I think I might have told you this before, but I've watched those shows before. That'd be so awesome. And then one time I was in Montana, it was cold, and I walked outside. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how could you even live like this, right? These people are, like, making their own shelter and creating fire, you know. But anyways, um, 
So, so in this show, there, there, there's a, a guy, and his skill is hunting. Like, he's a hunting guide. It's what he does. He's from Idaho, which is where you live if you're a hunting guide. And, um, and he, he has a bow and arrow. He's an expert with a bow and arrow. And it's day two, and he's already scouted out the land. He's already come across wildlife. He's, like, ahead of the game. He just can't shoot what he saw because it wasn't legal to shoot. So he's on day two. He's feeling good. He's hunting, and he grabs his bow, and then he's, like, you know, as it shows on the TV, you just hear beep, 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 beep. Those are all swear words that are being beeped out because his, his whole quiver is gone. This little mistake that he made that somehow he had a bow, but he had no arrows, and he, he is in the middle of nowhere, and he can't find his arrows, he can't see his arrows, and his bow is useless without his arrows. He can, he can trap, I mean, he can scout, he can follow the trail, he can smell the animals, whatever else, but he can't do anything without the arrow. And so when we're speaking of the value of children, I just thought about that. It was interesting that we, I saw that, and then I read this, that, that children are a, a vital part of a church community. They're a vital part of a family. I was just telling the story today to my friend. I was riding my bike here and I saw him in the circle and he was asking, hey, how'd that Jubilee thing go? I said, it was amazing. I said, the most amazing part was the worship night in the end when the children picked up flags and walked around the sanctuary for an hour and a half leading the way saying, this is how we celebrate. They didn't, I don't even think they, they didn't get together and go, hey, let's teach these people how to... But there was something of great, tremendous value that, that they, they have to us as a community here that God used them in that way. Do you remember that moment? It was electric. It was electric. And what was beautiful about it was like every step was like breaking down walls. And I know we've talked about it before, but even to the point where my, my favorite part is like now it's, you know, the child going, waving the flag and dancing before the Lord. And then lap two, it's like, come on, mom, you're coming with me, you know. And come on, Dad, you're coming too. And grabbing people along the way. So there's this partnership between the arrow and the bow. That, that it, it is vital in community that we are working multi-generationally. It's vital. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a catchphrase for churches. It's vital. That one without the other is ineffective. But together, it's a massive weapon. Yeah, I got a little backup on that one. <laughs> There's a, um, an, a pastor that I, I like to listen to sometimes named David Guzik. He's from um, Santa Barbara area. And these are some of his points about um, the arrow. And I'll put them up on the screen. It says that when we think of this analogy of the arrow, the arrow um, must be carefully shaped and formed. Um, oh, I think there's another one, but that's okay. The, first, the one that I have is they must be carefully shaped and formed. And, and an arrow doesn't work well. The reason why this guy was so bummed that he lost his arrows is because they were precision arrows. He can't just go and carve one out. But they have to be, it takes time to sharpen and shave and make them aerodynamic. And that's what the work of discipline is, um, that it is intentional. And for parents specifically on this one, I, I think it's important to say that discipline needs to be specific. It needs to be consistent and always with love. We know these things. But for each child, there's different, there's different nuances. What, what, what worked for one may not work for the other. But the key is consistency. The key is being specific. And the key is to do it in, in love. But it is a very intentional process. Um, the second one, which I did see on the screen, is that th- these arrows must be guided with strength. So whether it's your, your family itself or the church family, that there is a role of working together in multi-generational worship and in multi-generational fellowship and ministry. That when you put generations together, you see that the role of one generation, and I hope that you'll hear this, is to propel the next one. If you see, what, what does the arrow do? It goes while it's being shot from the bow. It doesn't mean that one generation is now insignificant and doesn't have something to do. It means the other, the, the generation that's gone before is like, here, here's how you do it. Psh, go for it. Does that make sense? If we get that, you get it all because then you see the, the thing that God longs to build consistently goes on and on. The next thing about these arrows is they must be um, given care. They, they won't fly straight. They must be aimed and given direction. 
and they will not find direction on their own. There's so much that can be said about these things, and I'm going to begin to wrap this up because I can't compete with pulled pork, but the, <laughs> the tone of this whole passage is knowing who God is, knowing who we are, knowing who the builder is, being open to the Holy Spirit, realigning your, our values to make sure that we're not laboring in vain trying to take the seed as the master builder when what we're called to be is the workers under his care. That he is the great shepherd, we are the under-shepherd. The, the piece about family can't be understated. There was a study that was done um, years ago and continued on to consistently survey what brought strength to families. This was done, I think, in like 30, I want to say 34 nations. I think it was done couple, like 25,000 people. And so it's international. It's done from people of faith and people not of faith. And it was like a, I don't know, like a study on, on family strength. And one of the, some of the questions that they would ask is they would say, like, asking children, what, uh, what, what makes you happy in your family, right? And, and their statement to check the box was, it, it wasn't a list of money, cars, fine homes. It was replied, um, doing things together, Right? Just doing things together. I was thinking back when we would buy our kids presents, you know, and you buy them something in a big box, and they would take the thing out of the box, and they would use the box. And the box would become a better toy than the thing that you just bought. Isn't that just such a great picture of the, the way that our, our values can get twisted? This international study gives these six things that... Um, Oh, I, I got my stats wrong. 24,000 families in 34 nations. It says the, the, the six things, and maybe this is some takeaway for somebody, that a family unit has to be committed to family. So it's taught early on that a family is a very important thing, right? And so not just mom, it's mom, dad, they're committed to family, but children learn to be committed to family. Secondly, that time is spent together. Thirdly, that there's good family communication. Good family communication doesn't mean that dad says whatever he wants and everybody listens and goes like this. Good communication means that there's things said and things heard, that there's opportunity to hear the family, that there's what later will come, the ability and the, the, the way to learn how to handle conflict in a healthy way. Four, to express appreciation for each other and about each other. There was something within this study that showed the... Um, just the toxicity of sarcasm, that sarcasm in small doses is probably just fine and funny, but sarcasm in large doses is toxic. And what that does is it begins to erode the family. It begins to erode relationships. It's basically saying things that you want to say that need to be said, but saying them in a funny way and not really giving opportunity to work that thing out. Does that make sense? Um, the fifth one was a spiritual commitment. Remember, this is not a, a Christian survey, so they call it a spiritual commitment. They found that families had a, that had a faith community showed much more contentment and strength together. And sixth, and the final one, was the ability to solve problems in crisis. That when tension came, when, when things um, began to press in, the family didn't fall apart, but the family strengthened and was able to to pivot, to be able to figure out how to fix things or to handle problems. And so again, I hope that some of this helps you with some practicality because I think the Word of God is extremely practical and I wanted to share a couple of those, um, those pieces. But I'd like to read this verse one last and final time. I'm going to invite Christian and the entire worship team to come forward and close us with a, a song. But in the, in the song, there's a, um, and in our time where I close, um, I'd like to just give a few opportunities to to think about some takeaways and some areas that, that you might look at your heart and offer up to the Lord anything that he's placing there that he wants. That word vanity, you know, meaninglessness, pointlessness, um, I put here in my notes, it's not, it's not wrong to have nice things. It's, it's wrong for nice things to have you, right? Not wrong to have nice things. It's wrong for nice things to have you. Um, we've said it over and over again through the years, and I've tried to live it out in my life, and there are times where I realize I'm holding on to things like this versus like this. 
that whatever God puts in these hands belong to him, that I'm going to be a steward over these things. Sometimes he places really cool things there that are fun and enjoyable. Other times he, he takes those things and you've got to let them go. Um, there are times where there's some hardship that's placed within these hands or some difficulty, but all of them are like this. We're offering up to God the one that, that promises to carry us. Um, and so in that, a caution towards overworking for what we think we need to make us happy. And I think that that's a trap that leads to a cycle of vanity or meaninglessness, okay? So there's a difference between working hard because you've, not, you've got to do it. Uh, and I would never, and I think the Bible speaks to that hard work and the fruit that comes from it. But there's another space of overworking in order to get what you think you need to make you happy. And I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to that because that's a, a something that's very tender, but that needs to be looked at. Unless the Lord builds a house, you labor in vain. Let's make sure that we're after the right values. So God is the builder. He's the watchman. He's the protector. Um, he's the one that's, that, that he is the one that we look to. And he's the one whose image that we're made in. We are not him, but we work for him and through him. And he in return um, blesses our lives and has given us many good promises. Does that, does that make sense? All right. Hey, let's stand together. Whatever song you'd like to lead us in, but, but as you begin to play it, I'm just going to read this and let it wash over you. And, and, um, and, and again, when, when we're done, we're going to pray over you, and we have a wonderful meal that we want to share together. But here's what the psalm says. Just let the, maybe even close your eyes. A lot was said in a lot of areas about this one little psalm, five verses But for a moment, put all that on the shelf and just listen to Scripture. This is what the Lord says through the Psalms, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep and rest to his beloved. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. As we sing this song of worship, just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and just let his word rest over you. Would, you. would you lead us, Christian? The reign of darkness now is ending In the kingdom of light In the kingdom of light Forever under your dominion You're the king of my life You're the king of my life You reign above it all You reign above it all Over the universe And over every heart There is no higher name Jesus, you
we declare that you do reign above it all. Lord, it's what we know to be true from your word, even that we read today. And Father, I pray blessing over your people. God, as they hear your word, I pray that you would help us to bridge that gap, that sometimes the things that we know so clearly are not the things that we do. And we can take a lesson from Solomon who seemed to model that. God, we pray that you would bridge that gap through the help of the Holy Spirit, that you would watch over our value systems. You would watch over the way that we work and how we work. May it bring glory to you. Lord, you would watch over the way that we're building our homes, that we would submit to you, the master builder, and not try to build in vain what we think we need, but Lord, to submit, to know your commands, to fear you, and to bring that into our homes, and that we would have that home of rest and that place of peace, that place where um, children can be formed and shaped like arrows. Lord, that whether it's in our, our smaller families or within our church family, God, help us to understand these concepts that we read in this passage and to walk it out with the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. Bless your people, God. I want to pray specifically, Lord, for anyone who feels that, that weight of worry attached to their work. God, I pray that you would even begin to lift that now off of shoulders and out of minds. That, that Lord, they, each one, God, would have a, a, a right view of their responsibilities. They would work hard as unto you, but they would not allow um, things to be carried that aren't intended to be carried. So, Lord, we pray against anything the enemy is trying to do to people to bring anxiety. And, Lord, we choose to, to cast our cares upon you because you care for us, to bring every anxiety to you and to exchange it, Lord, for the peace that passes understanding. So I bless your people now. And God, we again thank and praise you for the opportunity that we have to grow our relationships and friendships with one another, to extend our family here. Lord, would you bless our mealtime together? Would you bless our fellowship? And would you bless your people? We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen, amen. amen. God bless you.